After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome, everyone, to another Baseball America podcast. Along with J.J. Cooper, I'm John Manuel. Back after a hiatus, J.J., we're... Technically imposed hiatus. It was. We had a podcast that had eight takes, but now we're uh, not using our headsets. We are using a Blue Yeti microphone. We're very excited Unpaid about it. Unpaid plug there. We're not getting any money from it, but we're yay, not. we are excited. We're very excited to actually have moved into the 21st century of podcasting. We were podcasting with 20th century equipment, equipment that was made before podcasting existed. So we're happy. Uh, we appreciate everybody sticking with us through many years of uh, comments about the past podcast uh, audio quality. Hope that if the audio quality is improved, as we believe it shall be, let us know and uh, review us on iTunes and uh, and make that known. Also want to remind you that BaseballAmerica.com is your home for the 2014 Baseball America reference books. Uh, we're putting the Almanac to bed very soon, especially now the Major League season is over. Almanac going to bed, the directory, the prospect handbook, handbook of course, the granddaddy of them all. The Super Register, the Great Parks Calendar, all available at baseballamerica.com slash store. I have a point of uh, contention. The The Almanac is the granddaddy. The the Prospect Handbook is the sprightly sprightly, uh, youngster of the bunch. It's like actually been out the same amount of time as, no, younger than the Super Register. I think it is. I guess it's more like the Fiesta Bowl. Yeah. It's the newcomer, but it's just as good or better than all the rest of them. Right. I I can't believe I made a college football bowl game reference uh, there, but that's where I went. Yeah. Um, but we do, you're right. It it's is like the newest if TD Ameritrade book. was better than Rosenblatt, but it's not. But then we won't even go there. We won't even go there. I was trying to give it a more baseball I, I like that idea. I like what you were trying to go with it. But uh, we did witness the end of the World Series. Uh, that was as good a time as any for us to get out of our offices, stop talking to scouts for the handbook, and come record a podcast. Uh, JJ, I was going to throw this to you. So first off, kudos to the Boston Red Sox. Congratulations. And obviously congratulations to a lot of other organizations, St. Louis Cardinals, Oakland Athletics, Pittsburgh Pirates. A lot of organizations had great years. Um, but, J.J., uh, it was the end of an era in Major League Baseball. Tim McCarver signing off, retiring. I enjoyed Ken Rosenthal's ode to Tim McCarver. And I thought it was really important for someone like Kenny, who obviously works with him at Fox Sports, to help us put McCarver in some context beyond the grandfather that I think a lot of us were tired of and were ready to see exit the stage. But he had a graceful exit himself. Um, who would you like to see? But he's been the voice of Major League Baseball and the World Series for about 20 years, maybe more. Who would you like to see replace um, Tim McCarver in that role? I think it's a stretch to say Pedro. 
<laughs> After his TBS, uh, maybe, you know, I, no, that's probably a stretch to say that, that Pedro's ready for that job. But uh, Waka, waka, waka. He certainly enjoyed that. It, it, Pedro has some, there's some attraction there, but I don't think he's ready quite for prime time. No, and especially not, like, that's a different role. Studio, and that's a different role. The interesting thing is, is there's not a natural guy. There's not a natural guy, and I think a lot of that is, is that that's the how the game has changed. If you went back just a few years, every every team had their guy. I mean, they had a guy or a couple of guys who were longtime known tied to that team. That doesn't happen anymore, and I think that's more about how the game is now. And it's you're listening to it on MLB.com, which is a lot different than you're driving, you know, somewhere. You're listening to your team now. It's not something where if you have a team, you can listen to them all the time now. Much easier than it was when it was okay. I'm driving now, so who am I going to listen to tonight? And I'm going to listen to Ernie Harwell because I can get the Tigers game on the radio. I'm going to listen to, you know, Vince Scully is to me. Is he the last of those guys? Um, he's the last one who's been there for 30, 40 years. I do think every team still has people who are identified. I mean, if you think of the Braves, I still think people think of, like, Joe Simpson and Chip Carey, those guys who've done their broadcast for a long time. But yeah, they're not I, I, people... I, yeah, but they're not pe- right, but they're not people who are there for 30 or 40 years anymore. There has been a generational change. It did When you and I were in college, unfortunately, 20 years ago... Every team did seem to have an Ernie Harwell or who, Dave Newhouse, whoever, right, who had been there for a very long time, and we definitely there hasn't been distance between them. But yeah, like Bob Uecker, I guess, is the other guy who's yeah. who's been there for a long time. But when you also think of like ex-players who are prominent broadcasters, most of them are more prominent for what they've done in the studio. That's so true. if you're thinking about like say ESPN, for example, Oral Hershiser has become their main color analyst. He's only been in that role for a couple of years. And I do think he, I, that was the guy who came to my mind because I like pitchers in that role generally. I think they make very good color analysts because as a hitter, you got stories and all that. But the reality of it is, is that unless you're a catcher, there are a lot of positions where you're a little less, you, you're involved in your thing more. Whereas a pitcher, you kind of, I think you pick up some things that, that are interesting, are more interesting to share. You have more time to watch the game. Mm-hmm. You watch more as a pitcher than you do as a hitter. I think that's one part of it. I also think the other part of it, and I, I tend to agree with you, um, is that maybe the pitchers can discuss the game more. Also, it goes back to how we like to talk about evaluating prospects. There's more to it with pitching. There is more subtlety and things that adjustments that can be made, whereas hitters either hit or you don't. Either have that natural timing or you don't. I think the same thing is true with that. That true. That what's the word I'm looking for? That, uh, not a truity. That's not a word. But that maxim is carries over to the broadcasting. Along those lines, kind of tying it to the prospects. If a guy hits 223 years in a row, he's a you, 220. He's a 220 hitter. You know, in the minors. If he hits 220 in the minors, that guy's not going to become a solid big leaguer. Whereas with pitchers. A guy could have a 5 ERA, have a 5 ERA, have a 5 ERA, and then go, oh, new grip. Exactly. Hi, I'm now a pitching prospect. Exactly. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen with hitters. So I do think if I had to pick a pitcher, I I think I would actually lean toward Ron Darling over Hershiser. I prefer Darling, but that's another guy in the same genre. Mm -hmm. They're two sides, really the same coin. But I will throw out an X factor, and it's not because of his hair, and it's not because of his... um, and not because of anything else. I didn't go to Penn State. But I would say Tom Verducci is my Huckleberry. 
I would go Tom Verducci. And I, the only color analysis, color analysis I've seen Verducci do a couple of uh, Fox games this year. I've seen him do a couple of MLB Network games, and of course he did the Fall League last year. I think the combination of his contacts in the game, his knowledge of the game, his respect for the game, and just the fact that he would attack that with some real passion. Um, I wouldn't take it for granted. There's too many times where I think the ex-player doesn't do the preparation as a color analyst because they can rely on, here's what happened when I played. Um, I think that would make Verducci uh, the choice, and that would be the guy that I would want to see. But I don't. That's I, an interesting... I'm glad. That's why I asked the question, because I thought I had an interesting answer. You, you have an interesting answer. <laughs> I did not, you know, have an interesting answer. I had a stock no, you, generic answer. No, you did, but I think Earl Hershiser and Ron Darling are the most likely candidates. I'll tell you, the one that I fear the most is Kevin Millar. I really fear... The, the style approach. I, and Kevin Millar has substance. He played a Lamar, indie baller, best indie baller ever. Yes. Best yes. indie ball ever, Kevin Millar. But there's certainly the frosted tips and the affliction t-shirts and all that kind of stuff has trumped the substance that is actually there. So he has contact. When you play at Lamar in the year that he did, I just wrote about Dane Johnson. That was the pitching coach when Kevin Millar was there. And so he has contacts throughout the game. Obviously played. It might work, but my guess is it would not work for the majority of intelligent fans so I think there's a danger that Kevin Millar becomes the voice of baseball. And I do think it's important. You know, you think about the bat for basketball, for whatever, positive or negative, it was Marv Albert for a long time. Oh, yeah. And I think that was a positive for a lot of people to have Marv Albert. Yeah. And then when NBC had it and Albert had his troubles, it was Bob Costas. And the voice of the NFL, clearly, Al Michaels and, and, and John Madden, Madden and Summerall, it matters a lot more to football. But the Madden brand, I think, helped football. And... Um, you, yeah, I, I mean, don't know. Who, it, I think it, it matters for baseball. It, I, I think so too, from the standpoint of is, and this is going to take a couple of years. But there is a certain thing that when you hear certain voices, it tells you this is important. Right, it's a cue, absolutely. To me, I, I, I'm not sure there's a natural player like in Fox right now. Uh, if they continue to have the World Series for the foreseeable future, their number two guy is Eric Karros. I mean, I think Eric Karros is Greek American, so I'll give him a pass. But I mean, really. I don't think Eric Caro should be the voice of baseball for some people. And I don't think it should be Joe Buck either. Because I think Joe Buck, while he was better at baseball this year, I feel that his passion lies in the NFL. And I don't blame him. It's understandable. I don't dislike Joe Buck. But I'm just saying, I think baseball needs a strong color analyst who is the national guy all the time. And you hear the World Series, you want to hear what he has to say. And that, that's going to be a challenge. McCarver's filled that role for so long. This brings up an interesting point, though. What's difficult for baseball to develop this also is that baseball, baseball is a it is a much more regional sport. It has become that absolutely and in terms of the media. In no terms doubt. of, and, and the thing about this is, I don't think necessarily that's a bad thing. Like it gets thrown around as like that this is some awful thing that baseball. The reality is is that even when baseball, like I don't want to go back. To when baseball was a national sport and you got all excited because there was a Monday night baseball game and then you got the Saturday game of the week. Right. And other than that, you would never see any of these teams ever, uh, you know, otherwise. I love the fact that I can watch any team I want any night. But what that mainly means, we're baseball omnivores. We want to watch every sure. team. Most people, understandably, what's great about that is, is that I can watch my team 
Right. Or I can listen to my team's broadcast wherever I am, anywhere in the country, every night. It means that baseball has become more regional, but that's taking advantage or whatever you want to call it of the current uh, of the of the internet era. And as Pearl Jam would say, it's evolution, baby. I don't yeah. think it's negative. Evolution is evolution. For those of you who believe in it. Isn't always in the positive direction. It's not positive. It's not negative. Negative. It just is. And this has been the evolution. That's where baseball, the money is. And that's baseball the way it's plays one hundred and sixty-two games. It can't be a national for every event. team. It's there's not going to be some point where we're going to get all excited because hey, they're on the Fox game this week. Right. The reality of it is, is that we're giant baseball fans. I don't ever go, ooh, who's on the Fox game this week on Saturday because. I'm watching baseball Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. The, actually, to be honest with you, the thing that's frustrating is, is, oh, that means I can't watch any other games because they're blacked out on right. MLB.com. See, I will say it is different with little kids because I had my son stay up with me to watch some of the World Series games, but he never made it to the end. And he'd, you could see he'd start nodding off, you know, just getting tired at 9, 9, 15. <laughs> I didn't make it through every game. <laughs> right. But so, like, last night, game six, he wanted to stay up, but, like, 9, 15, Maybe it was even a little bit later than that. He he got he saw Stephen Drew's home run, and he thought, "Well, the Red Sox are going to win this game. I'm going to sleep." He, and I just said to him, are you, "Are you sure? I'll let you stay up a little longer." He goes, "Yeah." The problem with Major League Baseball games, Dad, is that they just go too long. And this is a guy who went to the College World Series this year, and, yeah, and sat. John's son is two games. a huge baseball fan, but it is the reality of this is that, and I don't. This is just the nature of the game. There are times in key innings in the World Series where you are talking, it is 30 seconds a pitch. Yeah, when you're watching on DVR, as he does in the morning, I'm telling him, fast forward, hit the 30-second button where you can and skip you're ahead. Getting, and, and You don't miss a pitch. And that's something I do think that really, if you ask what is where pitching changes, I think that there, I, I, I'm not one of those dyed-in-the-wool traditionalists who says no. It, it's... What, the way that we do pitching changes in baseball now isn't traditional. That wasn't right. the case. It's not something where you go, that's what it was like in 1950. You could in 1950. No one did. That's something where the game's evolved, and maybe you want to say, you know what? Maybe it is that you're allowed one time in, the, in a game to change pitcher in the middle of an inning where you have not allowed a run yet. Right. That, I don't think that that would cause the game irreparable harm. But the, that's not the bigger the bigger issue if you want to speed up the pace of the game is that And I don't blame pitchers or hitters. It's the game they've been taught to play. But the game you've been that everyone's been taught to play now is pitch happens. I step out. I think of what I want to do. I visualize what I'm going to do on this next pitch. Okay, now I step back in. And we saw it in this uh oh, the pitcher's in a rhythm. I'm gonna step back out because I'm gonna try to get him out of his rhythm. And that's part to me, that's part of the game. But it's very difficult for umpires, I think, to regulate that. And so that has to come from the commissioner's office. It has to come from the top. It has to come from throw a pitch with him stepping out of the plate. And, that, and That's obviously a bigger change that's going on in baseball yeah. in 2014 will be who replaces Bud Selig. But I, I thought the Tim McCarver thing was kind of an interesting uh, jumping off point of talking about mm-hmm. with the World Series. Um, but with the World Series over, it is prospect season. And prospect season kind of starts you know, with our league top 20s. Then, J.J., we have draft report cards. This was your – I think we're too far removed from league top 20s. We could talk about them, but uh, – Bauer you know, is still good. Exactly. Um, but draft report cards, um, as we start we, – we've already had top 10s uh, with Miami and Atlanta. Uh, but draft report cards, this was your first time doing draft report cards. And 
It's fun. It's one of our fun oh, assignments, it, is it not? It is. Uh, I want to do more next year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it really was fun because it, it is a great way to kind of just look at the draft. And we do a variety of categories, mainly partly to just kind of make sure that we are kind of covering the full gamut. You know, in a lot of cases, if you're reading, you know, our stuff, you know that the first round, a lot about the first round pick. Yep. But this is an opportunity to tell you a little bit more about the first round pick, but also to tell you, by the way, that 18th round pick, that guy can really run. Right. You know, you get later round picks, and a lot of times it's, this guy has a really interesting tool. Now, there's a lot of other tools that have to come together, but, you know, hey, the, the Brewers guy. Yeah, Johnny Davis. Johnny Davis. Draft report cards was great when we were talking about, you know, like, Johnny Davis. Like, wow, this guy is fascinating. He is fascinating, and Johnny Davis is a junior college player whom the Brewers drafted, I believe, in the 22nd round. I forget which Los Angeles junior college it was because he went to four. <laughs> and he started off at L.A. Train there are, Tech. There are, there are causes for concern any time you say the words when he played at his four junior colleges. Yes. But That's, I think I, I, now the makeup, I, I, the, the guy I talked to the most about Johnny Davis, and I think this maybe this will dispel some misconceptions, driving port cards don't have to just be what we're spoon-fed from the team mm-hmm. I usually wind up chasing down secondary sources mm-hmm. after I talk to the scouting director. And in the Brewers' case, it happened to be Johnny Davis' junior college coach. Because when the Brewers told me that Johnny Davis ran a six-flat 60, I called BS on that. <laughs> yes. Period. I just did. I, did, I, asked, I asked in a follow-up, really? Six-flat? And they were like, yeah, six-flat. I, I, I just said, I, I don't this. believe it. I've never... Been told by anyone that they got a guy at six flat. Yeah, me neither. The that's fastest a, I've ever. That's fastest like hearing I, a one six pop or a right. The fastest was, I heard it was three one to first. Yeah, the fastest I ever heard was a six one from Marcus Nettles at the University of Miami. I was told that Miami had a scout day, University of Miami, two thousand one team that ended up winning the national championship. But that Mike Rodriguez, an outfielder, ran a 6-3, and that Marcus Nettles ran a 6-1. And John Manuel's love affair with Marcus Nettles began. That's right. That's true. But I did not believe the 6-1. But anyway, that's the fastest I ever heard. John Davis, 6-flat. So I call his junior college coach, who happens to have been a bird dog for the Dodgers and threw batting practice for the Dodgers, Helped run the Dodgers workout pre-draft in 2009 when they drafted uh, when they worked out Billy Hamilton. They didn't draft him; they worked him out. So he comps Johnny Davis to Billy Hamilton for speed and Ricky Henderson for a body comp. I mean, look, the guy's 23 years old. He went to four different JCs, but he said, "Yeah, I mean, he ran 10-4, 10-5 over 100 meters." So I can buy six flat 60, and he ran track at LA Trade Tech, which is you know one of these rare track programs that are in the country. So he, he said, look, I never timed him myself, but that does not surprise a me. That's believable. A 10-400 is not world-class, but you're not far off from it. You're not. You're half a second back, which in the world of 100 meters is a chasm. Right. You, but you would be the, the, uh, the Estonia runner, you know, in the first heat, you know. But, but I was going to say Greek, but yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, 10, 10.4, 10.5 seconds. I can see that being a six-second flat burst or six and change. So, yeah, I would say it's more like you know, it's more likely it's. Now that's probably running track, but I mean the point is the guy's an eighty runner, and if he makes it, he could be that one off the scale, that point three percent runner. So, Johnny Davis, twenty-three years old, at a junior college, you know, he did hit two ninety in the Arizona League. Guy played very little high school baseball, but those are the stories that come out of draft report cards that are really the neat ones. 
or that's a little tidbits like, okay, the Braves took Jason Hirsch uh, out of Oklahoma State. You know, Jason Hirsch was a consensus guy, but I didn't know that the Braves had really followed Jason Hirsch significantly in high school in the Dallas area. Worked him out, really wanted him, wanted him early in the 2010 draft. Didn't think he was signable. The Pirates knew the signability was difficult, drafted him anyway. One of three unsigned picks they had in the first 10 rounds that year. Didn't get Jason Hirsch. Braves get him three years later. They're, and, and he's kind of a entree, J.J., to talk a little bit about the draft report cards and the Braves because the Braves are fascinating. The way they keep on drafting and developing, you had this as an SBA question, they keep finding fresh arms uh, and low mileage players. It's hard to call Jason Hurst a fresh arm who's had Tommy John surgery, but he is. It's surgically mean, reconstructed arm. It is. It is very fresh. Um, but they seem to be... Uh, six, six years plus left before the next step. That's at least, at least seven years. Um, but they're, um, they find players in out-of-the-way places oh. that other teams aren't finding as consistently. I, I think that you, you said, where the Braves' success come from right now? I mean, there's really a couple of points. One is you draft... You know, they, they did draft Jason Hayward, Freddie Freeman, same draft. That's pretty key. Good draft. I mean, that that's key because... You have this these two cornerstone guys that they needed. They had to have someone basically to come in and take over as chipper. And now Brian McCann likely gone. Right. Those guys do that. But beyond that, they've really, I think more than anything, I think the Braves scout junior colleges better. I'm not going to say as well as, as well as the cop-out way. I do think they scout them better than they, anyone else. They scout them more, and they scout them better. And it started with Roy Clark, and it's continued under Tony DeMacio. When the draft and follow rules were going on, they were a draft and follow team, very heavy. Tommy Hansen, uh, draft Tommy and Hansen's follow. Tommy Hansen's from the last, the second to last class of draft and follows. Cole Rohrball was one of my cheese balls from their, the last class of draft and follows. He didn't work out. I love Cole Rohrball. Um, but the Braves have continued that. I remember talking to Roy about them centering on JUCO players, and he just was very upfront about it. High school players, for the most part, were pricing themselves out of the Braves' range. The Braves didn't want to spend that kind of money in the draft on high school players, and junior college players were more signable, and they've had success with it, whether it's Cole, uh, whether it's Craig Kimbrell, Chris Medlin, Andleton Simmons, uh, on down the line. Uh, Brandon Beachy's another, not a JUCO guy, but an NDFA. Not West traditional. Park. Wes Parsons now in NDFA, who's a prospect, Vic Caratini. Um, it really is, uh, the run here is pretty good. Vic Caratini's in their top ten this year out of Miami-Dade. JC, it's it's a pretty nice run, JJ. And there, there really isn't another club in the same area code as far as uh, you know scouting junior colleges. as And, I, as and I think that's been key for them because the reality of it is, is that when they've gotten into more trouble is when they've gone kind of the more traditional route. They've had yeah. some guys work out, but... You know, Sean Gilmartin, that doesn't look very good for them. Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, they've, they've had a number of picks who you look, okay, that guy just didn't pan out. But And the Braves fans like to remind us of that. They're not sanguine on Tony DeMacio. Um, which, they, it was, it's a, it's a, I can see why, because there have been some first-round picks that have been underwhelming. The Gilmartin one is the one that but, sticks but out But correct me. if I'm wrong, Anderson Simmons, if I remember right, that was Tony's, that it was. Was, that was Tony's draft. That's, it was. That makes up for busting a first-round pick. I think so. Even if you didn't, even even if you just drafted him as a shortstop, and said, "Okay, we're going to let him play shortstop because we really want don't to convert him to pitcher." I don't care either. Uh, you know, sometimes you drafted a player who is an impact shortstop. 
Who's, I'm with you. Like, talk about cornerstone guys. He's another cornerstone guy for them. I don't care if you want to say, well, they lucked into it. They thought he was going to be a pitcher. They drafted him. They played him at shortstop, and he's a gold glove shortstop now. Just looking at that Braves 2007 draft, by the way, they drafted Craig Kimbrell that year, did not sign him. 33rd round, they drafted him and didn't sign him. And uh, there was one other. Oh, and then Brandon Belt. They, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually glad the Braves didn't sign Brandon Belt because I can't imagine. So, even if you didn't, even even if you just drafted him as a shortstop and said, okay, we're going to let him play shortstop because we really want to convert him to pitcher, I don't care either. Uh, you, know, sometimes, you drafted a player. But, J.J., the Braves, uh, you know. The Bra- I think the best way to put it with the Braves is, is the Braves' top ten is better than either of us thought it was when we started, you know, like thinking about the Braves' top ten. Right. It was. And there are a couple of intriguing guys in that top ten. Let's start with Tommy LaStella. Tommy LaStella is a guy that we wrote about a lot in college. He was a key player at Coastal Carolina. And Coastal Carolina, I believe it was LaStella's junior year in 2010, uh, one of those years they were loaded and won 50-some games. And remember, had an epic super regional against South Carolina when South Carolina took, went on to win the national yeah. championship. And South they were they were the one who gave them probably the best challenge. Plus, think back-to-back years, South Carolina's super regionals were really tough because they also had UConn the other year, the George Springer. They didn't have Mike Gold, but it was Springer, Ahmed, um, Matt Barnes, UConn, Kevin Vance, LJ Mazzilli. Very good UConn team. But Coastal Carolina was also outstanding. Rico Noel, the left-hander Cody Wheeler, who's the hard-throwing right-hander they had. Those Anthony Mayo, I think, was on that team. But I think Listella was on that team too. So that was, you know, kind of their year. That was their one big year, JJ. And um, Tom Listella's in the middle of that. And just talking to a scout today, who's seen him in the Arizona Fall League. Um, I think Peter Gammons was the one who tweeted out a Matt Carpenter comparison and. I don't think he's as athletic as Matt Carpenter. But they're, if they're you're, yeah, you're going to put a six or seven hit on LaStella and a lot of other four tools, uh, this scout didn't blink at that. He, I, I had a scout tell me this week you know, that he's as good as any hitter he saw this year in the minors. Yeah, now, and that's, that's and what that's, it is. Now, that's hit tool. I mean, that's not like he's the best prospect he's seen this year. This guy saw Buxton. Buxton's a better prospect. <laughs> right. Just a touch. But, I mean, it, it, he's a hard guy to rank because – you want to rank a guy like that aggressively, I think, having him in the top ten when he's never played a full season. So there's some injury issues and durability issues. Kind of what the ceiling really is for this guy. I think more likely he's a six hitter, but he does control the strike zone awfully well. 325 career hitter. Right. And I, I think, that, again, the caveat to me with that is you don't ever have time to get cold if you're always if you're playing 80 games. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do worry about that durability. I think it's a little bit, you know, oh, he has smaller sample sizes. And I do also worry, my big worry with LaStella, it all comes back to when you ask anyone who raves about his hit tool, then you follow that up and you say, so what do you think about him defensively? Right. And it comes back to the best you get is, I think he can do it. Right, exactly. And the answer of, I think he can do it, translates as, Okay, so yes, he's not exactly what you're looking for at second base, but second base is a position where if you knock the ball down, if you hit and you knock the ball down and you throw it to first, you'll probably be okay. When your comparison point is going to be Dan Ugla, he might look great in comparison to Dan Ugla. But well, I'll put it this way. I, I feel very confident that if you put Tommy LaStella in the big leagues next year and he made it through 150 games, He's going to have a higher average than, than Dan Ugla did this year. I, I feel that's extremely fair. confident on that. I, I'm, I'm with you on that one. But he, I mean, to me, that top six of the Braves was pretty 
Set, Sims, Betancourt, Graham. I think Graham would have been number one had he been healthy, but a oh, small I, I, guy. Yeah. I, I worry. Graham's one of those guys. I always worry about the guy who there's no good way to rank a guy who you don't know an answer on his health going into next year. Right. There's no good way to rank him. Cause I mean, he didn't have he did he threw an instructional league, but he didn't pitch a game in instructional league. He threw off flat ground, he threw off the mound. They wanted to get him into a game, but they couldn't he wasn't back up to full strength enough to get him into an instructional league game. That wasn't a great sign. Right. And because the problem with ranking that guy is is you rank if you rank him entirely on what he did before, then you put him okay, then he is number one on this right. list. At the same time, if you say oh, completely, you can't say on the other end, hey, we're not going to really rank this guy anywhere because we don't know what his stuff's going to look like. Well, you you can't do that either. So you have to kind of split the difference and just kind of try to do that and say, okay, well, you know, here's a, a best guess. If uh, Adding in some risk for the injury, but at the same time saying, okay, we're going to rank you still pretty high because... If healthy, he's number one on this list. He's a really he is he's a dip, very difficult guy to come up with a ranking for because he was almost number one on this list last year. You know, um, after Julio Tehran's really iffy season, to talk or about poor it, season, but to talk about it, pure healthy, a healthy J.R. Graham comparing him to Lucas Sims. In Graham's case, I don't know what his stuff's going to look like. Well, you you can't do that either. So you have to kind of split the difference and just kind of. Try to do harder throwing Chris Medlin. Everything he does, all the good things that Medlin does athleticism, repeats his delivery, keeps the ball down, works the bottom third of the, you know, the bottom of the zone. But he does it with pitches that grade out a grade or two better than, than Chris Medlin. And, and Chris Medlin, although he wasn't as good this year, has been pretty good the last couple of years. So um, I always like that comp uh, within the Braves' own organization. But it, not the deepest Braves top 30. But oh, I think once you get to, yeah, you get to that. 10 to 15 range, and you start getting a little... I don't think it was as bad as we thought it would be. No, I, I don't think so either. Yeah, I, 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 the, we, we talked about this in the office. We, we, we talk about BA grades for the Prospect Handbook a lot. Yes. Um, and one of the things that really uh, I kind of feel like that is your when you get your Prospect Handbook, and we assume that if you listen to this, it's well worth your while to get one. When you get it, look at with the team that you're looking at where the 50 highs start. Right. The 50 highs right. is the point that you get to where you say, okay, not that this the guy who ranks 12th at 50 high and the guy who ranks 26th who may also be a 50 high are an absolutely you know the same thing. They're not. But it is a sign of where you go from the guys who are high you, you are kind of more the slam dunk guys to the guys who a 50 high is generally going to be either a uh, a guy who was just drafted and had had a chance yet to have his flaws shown, right? Or the guys who have a lower ceiling at the upper levels. That's that's fair. That's, and, and a lot of draft guys who get that fifty high, like you said, and it's almost like a default. Um, you know, Listello was a tougher guy to rank. The Braves. That's that's one thing. The Braves had a lot of tough guys to grade. Um, a lot of guys who didn't fit neatly into the grades and the profiles because they're tough profiles. They had a lot more risk and. That also happens with a lot of low class A players. The Braves had a lot of players off their own team who wound up in their top ten. And I mean, even like, even like Jose Peraza, who's in their top right. ten. Like Jose Peraza is a guy. Okay, you can throw. You know, we haven't made said these crazy, but you can throw a fifty five on him if you if he's going to be a, a shortstop who's a top of the order hitter. Right, that could be a fifty five. 
But at the same time, a guy in low A who, despite all his steals, he's not an eight runner or you know right. anything like you could end up even with a guy like him saying that's more of a fifty. Yeah, it's he's it's going to be interesting to see some of their grades. And same thing with the Marlins because the Marlins JJ graduated so many of their really high grade players to the major leagues, and uh, we don't have a handbook handy, but Jose Fernandez got a pretty sick grade if memory serves last yes, year and well deserved because what was he like number five in the top 100 number six yeah it was high i know we had him jacked up and probably could have had him jacked up even more uh considering how good he was this year that's an organization that really graduated a lot of talent you know i did their minor i did their draft report card this year and this was a case uh, and there's one specific prospect in here who i want to talk about and that's zach cox you know, zach cox perfect example of why the cardinals are a good organization they draft him in the first round. They flipped him basically as soon as they possibly could. Um, a year and a half later, essentially, he's flipped to the Marlins. You can't flip him quicker than a year. That's the yeah. first day you can. One year and a day is the first day that you can trade a draft pick. And he's nowhere to be seen in the Marlins' top ten, and not on their forty-man roster. Outright off not, the forty-man roster. Say, not only not on their forty-man roster was dumped from their forty-man roster, and every other team out there said. Pass. Pass. Yep, everybody said, no thank you. Um, and this year they took Colin Moran in the first round. Colin Moran's a different side of that Zach Cox coin, where Zach Cox's track record in college was arm strength, not a lot of... The, the defensive tr- uh, scouting report was actually similar. Limited mobility, even though Moran's much bigger than Cox. Cox is like six feet tall. Colin's probably 6'3", six, 6'4". But Colin Moran, limited mobility, but they both had good arm strength. You know, could, can both play third base. Neither one's going to be a gold glover. With Moran, it's the hit tool over power. With Cox, it was either hit for power in college or he hit for average. He did not show the ability to do both at the same time. So really curious. So I, it's, it's a case of, I think, the Marlins taking uh, – Moran was probably the safe, one of the safest players in the draft. But – I think he's a better version of Zach Cox, but I think it's kind of similar. And he, he was really drafted in a lot of ways to fill an organizational need. When you have Ed Lucas at third base in the big leagues and you don't have anything else in your organization, and, you've traded Matt Dominguez for and Moran Carlos should move quickly. And Moran should move quickly. He should. That being said, now I, I, I do think, I, I follow where you're going on that. The big thing to me is, is I have a lot more belief that Moran is going to hit for some average with some power. Yes. I think the question with Moran really comes down to how much impact he's going to have. Yep. Zach Cox, I mean, we had these discussions in the office. You know, there there was a relatively strong belief among some that, you know, that Zach Cox wasn't going to ever have any impact. Yeah, and it's really strange that the industry really liked Zach Cox. It wasn't just the Cardinals. The industry liked that guy, and they liked him out of high school. I think it was a six-round pick in a high school. Um, it's just surprising how far south his bat went so quickly. Um, but the Marlins are the kind of the ones who get left holding the bag there. So after, so they had a first round pick at third base in 2007 in Dominguez. They had a 2010 first round pick in Cox that they traded for in 2012. And now in 2013, because of organization need, they had to go out and draft Moran. I shouldn't say had to, but no, I was he, say, fit, I, he that's fit not like that was, but, but it wasn't, when you say organization need, though. It was they one of their concerns. That's what comes up in the I'm draft not, report. I'm not cards. saying it wasn't one of their concerns. At the same time, though, this isn't like they forced a pick. Like Correct. Right. Oh, that's it, correct. That, to me, because when I hear organizational need, like, I, I do think that any team with the major with the baseball draft, because of you're talking a couple years out, 
any team that drafts and says, well, we've got this guy, this on our board, and we got this guy, this, but we need a right. center fielder. It happens in every draft. I mean, when an NBA player is not a first-round talent, but you draft them because you need a big man, that doesn't work out. Doesn't that work out the same in the, NBA, in the NFL? Usually you're the NFL expert here, but, right, but I'm if, saying, there's a, if there's a quarterback who's not a true right. first-round talent, but he gets forced into the first round because that, of the dearth of quarterbacks, that absolutely happens. it doesn't work out. I do think, though, the big difference, the big difference in baseball and where you really get into much more trouble when you do that is the best way I can put it is, is that the Red Sox a year ago looked like they had holes in a lot of places. Right. And now they're the best team in baseball. And they drafted Trey Ball this year. Right. And it's not, and it's not because of the draft. In football, when you say, well, we gotta, we, we've got to put a quarterback out there next year. I follow that. Or an NBA. We don't have a center. We're going to force this picket center because, you know what? We don't have one. In baseball, none of these guys you're talking, we're talking about, if you don't have a third baseman, and you say, we're going to draft this guy even though, and again, they didn't do that in this case. Right. But you draft a guy and say, even though we have this guy fifth on our board at this spot, we're going to take him because we need the position. Right. You run into much more trouble because even if that guy's decent, you're saying, okay, we know that three years from now or two years from now even at the speediest, five years from now, mm-hmm. we're going to need a third baseman. I and you like, can't predict that. I feel like the NBA draft has actually trended toward the baseball draft as they've drafted younger and younger and European and whatever. Well, so they... They don't. It, it's really more of a best player available draft in the NBA now than it ever used to be. Is that happening at all in football? When you have no, because in football not. the problem in football is is that for after you get past the first round, these guys hit restricted free agency in like year four. So if you're drafting a if you're drafting a guy, you know, like developmentally, by the time you develop him, he's going to be cost you a lot of money. So right. there's. There's a lot of incentive not to do that. All the incentive in, in the NFL is for colleges to develop their players for them. Right, it, it is. <laughs> but you look at going, you know, in baseball though, um, I think we've also seen examples of. Now I'm interested to see what's happening now because we really do have now with a lot of teams, the Tigers at first base, the Angels at first base, the Reds at first base. Yes, we have a number of teams who have essentially blocked off. The position that you have for, you know, the, the landing place for the guy who can hit, but who's questionable defensively. And essentially they've, especially in the Reds case, they've taken that position. That position is out of play. For the next decade? For the next decade. Like, and what's interesting about this is that, but you still see the Reds still, when they had Joey Votto, drafted Yonder Alonso, with right. the idea being, take the guy who you like at that position. We can always, if he develops, as we expect... You can always turn around. That turned into Matt Latos. But it is interesting to see because we haven't seen that before nearly as much. It's one thing when the Rangers sign A-Rod to a 10-year deal. He's a shortstop. Right. If you draft a shortstop, it's never like you say, oh, we don't know what we can do with this guy. He can only play shortstop. Right, yeah, the Red Sox did that with uh, when Nomar Garcia Parra was the 1997 Rookie of the Year, 1998 first round, Adam Everett. Right, it's like, they, it's like we can figure that we can always work out. You know, that's not a problem. But first base, I... I'm doing the Reds list right now. In another organization, you might say with Jesse Winker, well, that guy could end up at first base. Uh, Derek Lutz, not Derek Lutz. Uh, yeah, Derek Don, Lutz. Donald, Donald, Donald Lutz. Lutz. So, yeah. Derek Lutz was a pitcher for that. Browner Hulk. Yeah, but Donald Lutz, in another organization, Donald Lutz would not, they would not be saying work on your outfield play. Yeah. In that organization, you say it because... Oh, remember Brian Howard in the minor leagues? I, I just love going back and reading the old ones. Brian Howard develops. They had already signed Jim Tomey as a free agent. 
Hey, Ryan Howard, try playing left field. Can you imagine that these days with the way things have worked out for Ryan Howard? Ryan Howard in left field, that had to be amusing right. to say the least. Yeah. But but that's the thing about it is is that you have these teams where Hey, how about Yonder Alonso playing third base? That happened in the major leagues, didn't yeah. it? Having never played it in the minors. Yeah, Alan Craig at second base is one of my other favorite ones. The Cardinals did that. But but it is one of those things that like it would be interesting to see, but even with that, it still makes sense. If the guy's highest on your board, draft that guy first round. I understand. You're gonna draft for need in the sixth round because the reality is, is that, okay, well, you know what? We don't have a shortstop for our low A team. We right. need a shortstop. Okay, draft a college shortstop. But first round, I don't think it ever pays to to say, hey, we need that position. I, I do think uh, the, uh, I do think after the first round, a lot of teams do have, my experience has been where they go into a draft saying, okay, here's where the strength of this draft class is as we assess it, so we want to go after this. Or... Our organization really, we have no catchers. I know there's not a lot of catchers in this draft, but let's prioritize catchers. You know, if there's a, guys that we have th- in the third round, if we have three guys who have a third-round number on them, let's do what we can to get one of those three guys. And the interesting thing, we've seen several teams who this year did that to a crazy degree. And I think we both agree that we're not real big fans of that idea. Like the the team who takes right-hand, you know, takes pitchers with almost yeah. all their first 12-round picks. Yeah, that's an unusual one. Didn't the Angels do that? Yeah. The Angels have an extremely pitcher-heavy draft. Blue Jays were, were also, if I remember correctly, very... Although I think that they're, it's hard to measure their draft because their top draft bonuses wound up being after the first 10 rounds. So the, the whole Blue Jays draft, is just a, their drafts are just different right, right. now instead <laughs> of the way they're, they're running their whole draft. But, but the, they did that, and then um, you know we had a couple of years ago the Pirates who went right-hander pitcher-heavy. Yes, outside of Mel Rojas Jr. So, yeah, I mean... What else? Did anything else stand out to you in doing draft report cards? Because this this year's draft class, the, what, the other thing we wrote about in the process of doing draft report cards was those debuts of the top draft picks and the Jonathan Gray, Matt, uh, Mark Appel, Chris Bryant. And since then, JJ, we've had now Gray shut down and Appel. Neither one's pitching in the fall league, understandably, which it makes a lot of sense. Um, but Jonathan Gray, pretty outrageous debut, I, unhittable I, debut, especially. He wasn't allowed to use his slider in the Pioneer League, and then the Cal League had to was make like, things a little fair for the Pioneer League right. hitters. In the Cal League, yeah, it wasn't a league rule; it was the Rockies' rule. <laughs> Clarify that. Um, but when oh, he got your to the, too good, we had to have it banned. But we, exactly. But when we got to the Cal it's League, slider is a cutter. Don't worry. In the Cal League, they, yeah, exactly. The Cal League, they said, "No, oh, you could use your slider now. I'll allow it, counselor." And the result was the 075 ERA and like 14 strikeouts per nine. So this guy wows. Chris Bryant wows, 0 for 5 with 5 strikeouts in his first game in the Northwest League, then basically hits safely in all but one game after that. Three errors in his first Arizona League game, which was his first game. Uh, So there was a learning curve in both places, but then just dominant. I think the Cubs guy I just talked to today said that for the year, counting college, uh, regular season minor league, minor league postseason, and fall league, it's 47 home runs. Uh, Yeah. For, he hit, for Chris Bryant. He hit, uh, uh, so you got 31 in the uh, college. Yep. You've got nine right. in the uh, regular season. And now it's seven and in the fall league. Did he hit one last night? Yes. Yeah, so and, seven in the fall league. And there's a right center field oppo home run that's already like, just, just emailing with guys in the fall league because I'm going out there next week. It's kind of like an epic, oh yeah, the tales of this Chris Bryant 450 foot home run to right center field. That are just growing in legend in the fall. The, the best way to put it is, is right now, I think it's fair to say, when we're 
you know, we're a long way off from the top 100. Yes. But there's going to be a debate whether Chris Bryant or Jonathan Gray ends up rank, who ends up ranked higher of those two. Correct. Those there two guys is, are going to get shoved into the top 10. There is no debate right now whether Mark Appel is going to be ahead of them. Yeah, he's not going to be ahead of those guys. No, he's not. I mean, that's that. It just, I mean, that's just a little. You know, Mark Appel's not going to be ahead of him on the top hundred. It's not going to happen. And he was in the Midwest League, and it just sounds like JJ. Uh, it's not that he disappointed, but he didn't wow. He, he failed didn't wow. to wow, which he, I guess failing to wow is a disappointment when you go one one and you've been a two time first round pick. Really, if you're an Astros fan, what you're hopeful for on this is that okay, it was a long season. Not that his season was any longer. His season was actually shorter by a week than Jonathan Gray's, but. You don't want to go too overboard on a guy, you know, struggling, not even struggling, but not wowing after he's already done a full college season before he ever, you know, threw his first pitch. The reality of it is, is that if this was three years ago, he wouldn't have pitched. So we would be sitting here and just completely basing it off of what he did at Stanford. Yeah, and and an instruct. And an instruct. We would have been hanging on every pitch at instruct. By by the way, and we we will establish the rule again. The next guy who had a terrible instruct will be the first guy. Oh, he'll be the second because Jesus Montero had a terrible instruct. That's the Jesus Montero corollary is that uh, there's almost no one who ever has a terrible instruct. But there was one guy who got run down on an instruct. But that being said... No, I mean, Chris Bryant, the stories on Chris Bryant get better by the day. The stories on Jonathan Gray aren't getting better because he's not doing anything right now. Right, but, but they were they pretty were good. Pretty, they were pretty loud. They weren't so loud on Mark Appel. No one, I mean, I didn't see, talk to anyone who saw him in the Midwest League, and I talked to, I think, three different scouts who saw him, which, I mean, that doesn't sound like that many, but he didn't throw that many. You know, you, he threw, I think, eight games. Right. Three different guys, and all three are like, eh. I'm not saying no. I'm not saying not a big league or anything like that. But they were all three like, I expected more. Yeah. No one's, we haven't heard anyone who came back from the fall league or saw, you know, Chris Bryant in the Florida State League and went, you know, I expected more out of that guy than the mammoth show he put on for me. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it has been, uh, it's impressive. And it's a column I got to work on is how did the city of Las Vegas produce 2010 draft high school class Chris Bryant? Should have been 2011 high school draft class Bryce Harper, who was actually 2010 junior college class, but we all know that story. But he was in the class of 2011. So Bryant was in the class of 2010, Harper 2011, Gallo 2012. Who you got most power out of those three guys, JJ? Gallo. Wow. <laughs> I knew you were going to go Gallo, but. I mean, I'm not I'm saying, saying I'm not Bryce saying, Harper. You know, I, and if you want to say Gallo or Harper, and I mean, like, and look, we're saying I'm going Harper, Bryant, Gallo. I am, and you just were you're ta- you were literally taken aback. I, my, my 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 jaw actually did drop, but you know, I again, I, I guess part of it comes down. I haven't seen, you know, I, I don't want to give a you know observer bias to it, but I'm doing observer bias to it in that I've seen multiple games of Joey Gallo BP, and I. I've seen, you know, I can't, I can't think of who I've seen. I, I've watched Russ Brannion BP, which I always <laughs> think of. I mean, that's a deep cut, but for Not all really. his, but for all his flaws, Russ Brannion is to be one of the guys who stands out. I've seen William O'Pena BP. That's a deeper cut, you know, than, to me than Russ I've Brannion. seen Latimer Ballantin, your Japan uh, home run, you know, champ. Uh, you know, and these are all guys, and Gallo may fit in the same category of the yeah. guy who has. 
you know, when we're talking about 10 years from now, you go, the BP shows were amazing. I'll put and it this way. Anthony Iapos is the Cubs uh, hitting instructor, hitting coordinator. He was in the Marlins system when Giancarlo Stanton was in the Marlins that was coming up. Mm-hmm. And he was hitting coach in Jupiter when Stanton was there. And Stanton, to me, is like, I know he didn't perform this year, but just but no, Stan raw, is, Stan is, is, you know. If you're one of these scouts who believes in only 180 and everybody else is after that, which we don't Stan, believe that. I don't believe that. I think there's we're not people off the scale. So if he's in that 0.3% outlier, I would say. I, I still, one of the more fun stories I've, you know, there's a lot of fun stories I've gotten to do at BA, so great job. But one of the more fun ones was just a random thing, was a home run that Stanton hit when he was playing for AA Jacksonville. And, like, got was able to get, like, a good description of where the ball landed. And, like... You know, the great thing now is, is again, the the world we live in now right. was able to pull it up on Google Maps with a little pedometer out, and like, okay, so it started here and it landed here, and it's like, wait, let me check that again. Right. Like, wait, wait, is that right? You know, it was right at 500, if I remember correctly. Well, that's the that's the stories you get with doing the Cubs top 30, which I'm doing for the first time this year, are Baez and Bryant, Javier Baez and Chris Bryant, just like the can you top this? I guess the home run the Javier Baez hit against Japan in Major League Spring Training when the Japanese team was uh, here for the WBC. That's an epic home run. That's among the epic home runs that Javi Baez has hit. My favorite Javi Baez story, I know I'm digressing here a little bit, but Javi Baez apparently hit a home run when there was catcher's interference. (laughs) He hit a home run where if you watch it on YouTube, he looks back at the catcher and the umpire and is yelling to the umpire that he didn't call catcher's interference. Other than that, he got the glove. So that's a unique one. So there's a few unique stories. I, my with this favorite guy, one is, is that I mean, is the game. I think he hit three, and it was he had like a four. Four. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. But this was. Didn't he also? Did he have a two or a three? I think he also had a three, but I think because this he had was a double A. Because yeah, I hate to say I was watching probably MLB two, TV. Probably two. It may have been two, but I was watching MLB. T- it may have been two, and then another, you know, like double or triple or whatever. And it was just. I mean, it was like by the time he came up in like the seventh inning, all the announcers were like, "Well, let's just see what he does here." I mean, it was. It was like Big Poppy in the World Series. It was that, that, that kind of By the way, that's a, that's a perfect digression to wrap this up on. Um, we talked about this in the office a little bit. Okay. So I'll throw it to you. I, you know, you okay. put me on the spot, I'll throw you on the spot. We, but not putting you on the spot because we talked about this that's already. All right. greatest, but greatest DH of all time. For me, it's still Big Frank. I'd say it's Frank Thomas. I agree. Uh, I know that he played a lot of games at first base, but he played more games at DH or as the DH than he did as a first baseman. And I just think, you know, he's a better pure hitter than Edgar Martinez or uh, David Ortiz. And that's saying something for Edgar Martinez, who was as pure as it comes. I know Frank Thomas, some people didn't like his swing, that old kind of Charlie Lau, Walt Raniak swing. But, I mean, I mean, why would he have changed anything? He controlled the strike zone as well as anybody. He had unbelievable power. I mean, he was like a 70 hitter with 70 power. I mean, I, I don't see how it... I don't see how there's a debate. I, 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 get, I, I respect Dave Cameron. I respect a lot of the Mariners. There are a lot of very intelligent Mariners fans. I get the cult of Edgar Martinez. I don't see how we forget about Frank Thomas. I, I really don't. It, the only argument to me is, is if you're arguing that he's not a DH, but I don't know how you can do that because that's the difficult thing about a DH argument is that So I can't see how you say, no, Frank Thomas doesn't fit the category because he played a middling first base in the first half of his career. And that disqualifies him for being this compared to a guy who played a poor third base and they pulled the plug on that quicker. Yeah, and 
I mean, just the just the rate numbers, the OPS plus, the on base, the slugging, the total, the counting numbers—they're all in—they're all in Frank Thomas's favor. I mean, they really—they're they're all in his favor. So, uh, I respect. And, and for me, I think I would rank it Thomas, and I'm not counting Molitor. Molitor, I believe, had a plurality of Molitor games played, at DH. Yeah. But he didn't have the majority of his Molitor games played, in his career. Wait, Molitor's a position player. I mean, he he played. I think the majority of his games he played at a position. Mm-hmm. But if you rate you rank the games by position played, DH comes first. So that, that, that I, I do think you could make that argument. If someone wants to make the argument, Molitor is the greatest DH. I, I still don't think I still take. Frank I would over. take Frank Thomas over him. Still, I agree. I don't think Frank Thomas gets a lot. Of, I mean, obviously he didn't play in the postseason in 2005 for the White Sox, but he was part of that team. Uh, for a World Series championship team. So, to me, that helps. The biggest thing that Ortiz has over the other players is his postseason heroics are obviously uh, legendary and reality as well. Right. <laughs> and there always, it's like you get credit for that. At the same time, I hate to penalize a guy too much for the fact that, like, you don't, you don't get to pick the team you're on. Right. And but when you're there, he did take advantage of the situation. I mean, Frank Thomas... 224, but 441, 429 in 16 playoff games. So not bad, but certainly you're, when you're facing better pitching but, and you're as good, whether it's clutch or whether it's because you're good, David Ortiz deserves the credit right. for those right. but long time, period of very good postseason right. performance. See, so yeah, he has 16 games. How many did Big Poppy have this year? I mean, close to 16. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, five. Uh, well, I forget. I, I'm not, I'm no math but, right now. I mean, but yes, I mean, it, that's. That's the other thing. It's like I, I do find also I, one I do get a little bugged by is when they say so and so set a postseason record for most this or whatever. It's like yeah, the apples to oranges postseason um, records. You're playing a whole lot more games now than you know back when you're just like okay, let's go play the World Series now. The regular season's over. Yeah, so that it is on, uh, when Tim McCarver, as we started, says David Ortiz is the best um, DH of all time. I do think. In his Boston incarnation, that's defensible. His OPS plus is basically the same, if not a tiny bit better than Edgar Martinez's. It's uh, the way, if I remember correctly, it was 156 for, and I know that's just one measurement. Yeah, it's not the only measurement. measurement. It was 156 We're, for Frank these Thomas. These are DHs. We're not having to work anything right. else in there. It's just hitting. Right. It was 156 for Big Frank, um, 148 for Big Poppy, 147 for Edgar Martinez. And if you wanted to give, if you, if you wanted to say that argument, and then give Ortiz credit for his career has gone long enough that he's still productive in a much less offensive era than Martinez or Thomas played in. Because those two guys' careers basically were the most offensive era in baseball since right. the 1930s. But when you say OPS Plus, you're already in a normal Right, I, you're right, you're right. But I, so, and if you want to give uh, you know, Tom, Edgar Martinez a little bit more credit, because when he did play defense, he played more third. I think that those three guys are the guys who are in the argument, but I think Frank Thomas was that argument. The, the interesting thing to me, though, is, is that what's the most fascinating part of, of David Ortiz's career to me is that we're talking about a guy who looked like he was done. Yeah, he was non-tendered for $1.25 million, but the Red Sox signed him for one point two. No, I'm not talking about that point done. Oh, a couple of years ago. I'm talking a couple of years ago where it really looked like, okay, this is a guy... Who can't get around on the good fastball anymore? The power's not what it was, and now here he is, and really he's as good as he's ever been right now. He's close, that's for sure. I mean, you know, T- uh, Hall of Famer JJ. I mean, yeah. we don't have votes, but 
I think no, I think well again, take standard caveat applies. He's been tarred with the the PED brush, which in modern day it does seem like that that means he's probably not going to get you know that there's a very good chance he's not going to get voted in. It was 2009 that he had his 238, 332, 462 year. He still hit 28 home runs that year, and the year before uh, 2008, 23 home runs. Uh, those are those two back-to-back years where he was mortal. So uh, the last two seasons, the rate stats were great in 2012, but I don't know if he quit on the Red Sox or just decided, boy, that Achilles, I'm really going to not push it to come back to play for Bobby Valentine. You know, I think that's the better that's, way to put it. To me, by the way, that is another fascinating aspect of this, is that it's amazing, and I don't want to put it all on Bobby Valentine. I mean, like I, I think it's fair to say Bobby Valentine will never get another managing job because of that, that that's done. That's done. That being said, though, it is amazing to me. And I know they got the reset with the big trade with the Dodgers and all that. But that being said, it is fascinating to me that a team that could be the disaster that they were last year. I mean, you know, it it's not your typical. They're not what I think of as a worst to first story. And they weren't like it wasn't like this year's Phillies who were uninteresting and boring and won seventy three games. They won 63 games, I think it was, last year. And really... It was with, horrendous. I know they had, in many ways, you know, they had a new outfield because Ellsbury was healthy, and then they had new, you know... Corners. New corners. Including Daniel Nava. But that being said, it is amazing to me that really still, the core of this team, though, is the same core they had last year. Yeah, it is the same core. I mean, the big differences were the, the guys around the edges, mm-hmm. Victorino, Napoli, those kind of guys. But, and this is a team, though... You look at this team and say, okay, we saw, we saw, we're starting to see right now. We talked about with the Braves, okay, do they have new core guys stepping in? Well, one of them was playing third base. That's a core guy. Xander Bogarts was part of two pretty nice celebrations this year because there's this World Series championship and then the one when they beat Cuba in uh, Taiwan. He had a long, long season. He did, and uh, I just love reading. uh, I'm putting the international section together for the Almanac, the granddaddy of them all, and... uh, Rereading about Xander Bogart's role in their upset of Cuba, and then reading about him being the third baseman in San Francisco, where he was at third, Profar was at second, and uh, Simmons was at short. It was a lot of fun to watch the Netherlands take infield. We'll just put it that way. That was a very fun way to start the baseball season for us with with professionals. And, and it really is kind of sad. You, you get to put a little. You know, exclamation point next week. A little extra bow on it next week in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, oh, exclamation point maybe a little strong when you say World Series is over. Well, and we, we weren't there for that. Yeah. But, so, yeah. Well, a good period at the end of the season, like you said, for Arizona Fall League. And i actually uh, very happy to be part of MLB Network's broadcast next week. So uh, look forward to that. I'll be on four games next week, and we'll, I'll bring the headset, and we'll try to Skype from there as well. So, and I'll be using the Blue Yeti. Which is ex- outstanding. Like I said, uh, feel free to go review the audio quality at the very least on iTunes and let people know that, hey, we actually uh, sound better than we used to sound. So for at JJCoop36, I'm at John Manuel BA. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Uh, I kind of feel like that is your, when you get your prospect handbook, and we assume that if you listen to this, it's well worth your while to get one. When you get it, look at... After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. 
You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Trick responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.